it's a lovely sunny day in Hackney and me and Mr Binks are in my garden sunning ourselves. I should just clarify that Mr Binks isn't my boyfriend, but he is my English toy terrier. And we're about to go indoors to record a podcast over Zoom with Claire Guest. Claire is the CEO of a truly groundbreaking charity called Medical Detection Dogs. And we're going to be talking about all of their work, but particularly on dogs being trained to sniff out COVID-19. I'm Anna Webb, and this is A Dog's Life. Hi, Claire. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of A Dog's Life. Hi. Hi, um, Anna. I'm delighted to join you. You know, it's so funny, really, isn't it? Because here we are speaking over Zoom. Who would have imagined when we first met, do you remember, in a field um, for Dog Train and Behave Week way back in 2007, when the charity was just a tiny seed of an idea that 13 years later, we'd be social distancing in a global pandemic and that the charity that was a seed is now an amazing tree that has blossomed and in fact could be really leading the way on the front line to help manage this global pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, as you quite rightly say, I know it, it was from tiny beginnings from those anecdotal stories that some people around the world had said that you know they thought their dogs had had detected their cancer that led to the the formation of the work and it has come so far now and these times at the moment they're just surreal aren't they I mean um, you know we 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 go about our lives sort of when we do take it for granted we don't we don't see and then it takes something like this perhaps for us to all have a check and, and, and realize how lucky we are normally. Um, absolutely, absolutely. But back in the day when we were able to um, meet <laughs> in person, <laughs> I remember visiting you and um, that was just after this very, very landmark scientific study had been published everywhere um, in the Lancet and all the, the medical journals. And it featured a very special working cocker called Tangle. Please explain a bit more about that study and really why Tangle made history. Absolutely. And as I, as I sit here, actually, I have a, a little statue of a Tangle-like spaniel with his ashes sat behind me, and he's always oh. with me. Um, he, um, as you say, I said it's one of those anecdotes, but I was very lucky to team up with a doctor called Dr. John Church. He was a, uh, he'd been a surgeon in Rwanda, and he had a real sort of um, broader view of, of, of medicine and how, in fact, animals and, and humans may work together. And he'd, he'd written the, the, uh, the anecdote in the Lancet as you quite rightly say and he he was on Radio 4 and he said if anybody out there could help me prove that dogs might be able to smell cancer then please come forward so I did um, and we lived within 20 minutes of each other which was uh, sort of serendipity and we we started the study with um, our local hospital um, and it went on for publication in the British Medical Journal that proved that dogs could be trained to detect human bladder cancer now, at the time, and in the time of the study, the dogs in the data was grouped, but Tangle, my little brown cocker spaniel, um, was the most accurate. And after a very small number of training trials, 
So we only actually had about 24 cancers to learn from and 50 controls. He managed to get 56% reliability on completely new patients. Now bear in mind that, you know, it's a small training time and that up until this point, nobody even knew that cancer had its own unique odor. This was quite remarkable and groundbreaking. And people came from all over the world to see Tango work and he demonstrated um, with um, incredible sort of, uh, he, has, he was a dog with an, he was a very sort of quiet but um, careful little dog and um, everybody in the world was sort of bowled over by him. I oh, know, he, he did have a personality about him. There's, there's no question about that. So Claire, where is the cancer research work now? So I'm really, really pleased to say it's come on incredibly well. And I think, you know, when the charity started, one of the big scepticisms was, okay, well, you know, so cancer has an odour, but, you know, dogs can smell it. But, you know, how are we going to upscale this? You know, how are dogs really going to make a difference? And as a, you know, huge dog lover, as I know you are, you know, one of the concerns for me was, well, I didn't want it to ultimately mean that there were lots of dogs trained and perhaps not, you know, kept in optimum conditions. I mean, in our charity, all our dogs are, we have a no kennel policy and all our dogs live in pet homes or volunteers homes and come into work but you know you could quite see that it you know that wouldn't necessarily be the case so I think what we always believed really for the cancer work was because cancer effects could affect anybody around the world that we need to try and find out how the dog does this and therefore then try and um, develop a bioelectronic nose that would mimic the dog and I'm really, really pleased to say that um, a quantum physicist in um, MIT in, in, in the USA, MIT is one of the leading um, institutes for technology, um, approached us two or three years ago. He'd read our work, he'd been following our work, and he saw that we were really starting to understand um, how well dogs could detect the odour of cancer, particularly we were focusing on prostate cancer, and you know what influences affected this. For example, did temperature affect it? Did how long the sample had been out affect it? Um, did the stage of cancer affect it? And what he's now working with us, uh, we're working as a collaborative team, is to get the dogs to inform artificial intelligence uh, what cancer smells like. So, for example, if I say to you the word lavender, well, immediately you can imagine what lavender smells like. And um, if you try to describe that to the person sitting next to you, you wouldn't get anywhere. I mean, nearest you'd probably get to is flowery. But if you want to become a lavender detector, I'm going to have to teach you. And the way I'd probably do that is give you lots of pieces of lavender and say, now, this is really lavendery. This piece smells just what I would call lavender. This piece here hmm, doesn't smell so strongly, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what the dogs are doing is they are working now on an interactive system. So the stands they work on when they do their detections actually have... Um, they have their set up so the dog is able to communicate with the stand. It sounds very science fiction, but the dog is able to push the stand hard if it's a really good example. Um, he spends longer um, around the, the sample. He, he, he it sniffs harder. All these things are measured now and they're going to build algorithms which are teaching artificial intelligence what cancer smells like. Now, ultimately, this means we could have the power of the dog's nose, the understanding from the only animal currently, the only thing currently on the planet that knows what cancer smells like, ultimately is going to teach our, us humans and our technology um, what this unique odour is. So Claire, would that be then used, say, in the NHS, if you were worried that you, you might 
have a certain type of cancer um, and speed up the process for early diagnosis. Absolutely. I mean, Andreas says that he believes that the technology could even go into a mobile phone so that, um, you know, in the mornings you might sort of breathe into your phone and your phone would give you a sort of bit of a health check and it would tell you whether or not um, you were, you were, you were, there were any cancer volatiles available. Technology is moving very fast, but it has to under, it has to learn what these smells are. And people might say, "Well, okay, well, why can't we just break it down with something like a mass spectrometer?" You know, there might be some scientists out there that think, "Well, you know, you just break it down into its ingredient parts, don't you, like a cake?" But the truth of the matter is is that you can't necessarily can't necessarily tell the cake from its ingredients. All you can see is ingredients. And what we now know about smell is smell is a perception, just like vision is a perception. And people may know those pictures when you look at a picture. There's one that's a very popular one, which is an old lady or a young lady. Some people look at it and they see a very old hag of a lady with a great big nose. And some people see a beautiful French lady with a feather coming out of her hat. Now, the actual dots that go into the back of the retina are identical. What's different is perception. And now what we understand about odour is that odour is perception. So you can't necessarily tell what that odour is by looking at the dots. In terms of the way the dog computes odour and smell, mm -hmm. of course, it's also so different from how we compute odour and smell. Explain a little bit to people who might be thinking right now, yeah, but hang on a minute, how can a dog really have this much of a power of, of smell? Mm -hmm. Well, they have 350 million uh, sensory receptors or, um, dedicated to olfaction. Us humans have got uh, 5 million, so we can smell, you know, our sense of smell is, is reasonable, but if you think you've got 350 million um, olfactors um, dedicated, this means that they go down to parts per trillion. Now, we have done some work at the, our training centre and we were um, diluting something called amyl acetate, which smells like um, pear drops. Our dogs went down to parts per trillion, which would be the equivalent of a teaspoon of sugar in the volume of water held by two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Now, us humans are lucky if we can smell a teaspoon of sugar in a cup of tea. So that gives you some comparison. This is a world of smell. But in addition to this, a dog has a second nose. Um, mm. He has a nose on the front of his face and he also has um, a nose at the back of his throat called the organ of Jacobson. And this is quite um, active in a dog. We all know that when a dog gets interested in odour, and many owners will have heard this, they have a certain normal sniff rate. But as soon as they get into, onto a patch that they're interested, you hear this sniff rate rapidly increasing. And they are actually... Uh, increasing it and they are able to breathe in and out of the nostrils at different times so what they do is we sort of breathe in and it's through two nostrils they can breathe in and out of the different nostrils and it produces a sort of little vortex and this vortex draws more volatiles into the nose they then gulp slightly and that little gulping sound draws air into the organ of Jacobson as well. So they have two centres analysing odour at the same time, going to slightly different parts of the brain. Now this is quite remarkable and it means they're able to make very, very small distinctions. The other thing that's remarkable is they have these little slits at the side of their nose and that means that as they're taking in air very rapidly that they're interested in, they can exhale old air from the back of the throat now us humans can't do that and we can't we can only breathe in or breathe out and we get into quite a mess if we don't so these they are absolutely 
biosensors that are and they've got fluffy coats and they've got waggy tails but make no mistake these dogs are absolutely incredible in their ability to detect odor so can any dog have this capacity claire well, I have to be very careful here, don't I? <laughs> not, not to offend. Um, in, in, in particularly uh, with, with, with the lovely bull breeds, because actually, it most dogs, in theory, could do it at some level. Um, but the dogs that do it particularly well are the working gun dogs, and um, because they just love searching and hunting all day, don't they? Do it. Also, the the dogs with the slightly flatter faces, um, unfortunately, have uh, some of their olfactory capability has been compromised. They don't clear the air as well. So we're really talking about the working gun dog breeds that have got a sort of a medium, moderate size nose, not the sight hounds either that have got a very, very long sort of nose and are more um, focused on on vision. So. Um, the dogs we use, we use rescue dogs, unwanted dogs, um, and donated dogs. And we do have a lot of sort of spaniel types. Um, but I've got one here at the moment, he's licking his feet because he's been out in the mud somewhere, um, who had seven homes before he came to me. He's a little rescue working cocker. Got into lots of trouble because he had lots of energy and lots of personality. And these dogs absolutely just love it. They love, you know, they love these research games. Because it is a game, isn't it, to the dog? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's an interesting point because certainly the actual search game is, you know, the game that, that some of these gun dogs just just absolutely live for. You know, we've all seen the dog you throw the tennis ball, you know, 50 times and they want you to throw it another 50, snuffling around in the grass to find it. And it's all about that. It's finding that odour that I've been trained to find. And they do absolutely, you know, they, they enjoy every moment of it. As a, as a sort of, you know, now a sort of mature behavioural psychologist, I, I am often struck by the fact that I do wonder whether the dogs understand that although this is a game and they love it, that there's something a bit more serious about it. They are incredible. I mean, our assistance dogs that work alongside individuals on a daily basis, they really seem to appreciate the difference they're making to their owners. And to that, to that extent, it goes beyond the sort of biscuit or the, you know, the, 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 the pat that they have at the end. So I think there's still a lot we can learn and understand from our dogs. During all the success and the growth of the charity, um, you've had personal experience, in fact, with your own dog, Daisy, uh, detecting your own cancer. Is that right? I did. I mean, it was something that I just you know, didn't imagine would ever happen at all. So the charity had been going, we'd set up the charity. Um, it'd been going for a year or more. And I had this beautiful, beautiful fox red Labrador called Daisy. Um, she was working on the prostate cancer um, project. She was doing incredibly well and showing herself to have um, a huge um, accuracy in detection from urine samples. She started to become a little bit sort of, um, I wasn't wary of me, but she didn't, she, when she used to come up to me, um, she, she sort of had big brown eyes and I sort of wondered what, you know, what, what, what was bothering her. And then one day I went for a walk, um, I was taking the dogs out for a walk, I opened the back of my car up so they could all jump out. Daisy didn't jump out, she sort of nudged at me and stared at my face and nudged me and stared at my face several times and looked sort of quite animated about it. I just sort of said, well, you know, Daisy, off you go, go and run around, which she did. Um, but as I was walking around, I sort of felt this bit of a lump where she'd been nudging. I sort of thought, well, you know, I've not really noticed that before, or keep an eye on it. But uh, a couple of days later, I was pretty sure there was something there. So I thought I would go to my GP. Um, kind of long story short, I was referred. I um, 
they didn't believe there was anything wrong. I was 45 years old. They weren't concerned about the lamp, lump, but they did send me for, um, they, they did a biopsy on the first lump and weren't concerned, but they um, did send me for a mammogram. And the mammogram showed that I had very, very deep-seated breast cancer. So deep-seated that I was told by my clinician that had Daisy not drawn my attention to it, that um, my prognosis would have been very, very different because it was growing back as well as forward. And by the time I'd have felt anything forward, um, it probably would have been a very large tumour. Because of Daisy's actions, not only am I still here today, but actually my surgeon and my oncologist uh, both... Um, now are huge supporters of the charity. My oncologist is a, one of our trustees. They really believe that Daisy's actions led me to have a very, very different prognosis. So what was so hard, I think, was that Daisy, when she was 13 and a half, she um, was still going out running with me. She could still run 2K. She couldn't run five anymore, but she could run two very, very happily. And a couple of days, I noticed she wasn't quite herself. And um, uh, found a lump she went to a specialist hospital because she was um, a very very important dog and um, they found that um, she had a very aggressive cancer which um, I gave she was given a first dose of chemotherapy because they thought that she would respond well but unfortunately she responded very badly to it and within two days had died or I'd had to make that terrible decision and huge sadness in that I couldn't do for her what she did for me. And I think um, these relationships we have with our dogs are, I mean, quite incredible. You know, we talk about, you know, them, 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 them laying down their lives for us. We talk about them being, you know, our best friends, but truly they, they really, really are. And I think, uh, you know, I miss Daisy every day. She, she's um, everybody in the charity who's worked for the charity over the years remembers her and, staff are wonderful they all all have a little daisy badge that they wear in her memory so we know her legacy lives on her legacy lives on in um now the scientists that are working with us to understand how daisy how max did this incredible thing and therefore by understanding this how we're going to save many many millions of lives in the future oh claire that really has brought a tear to my <laughs> eye and we need yeah. to keep your research going don't we and you're not publicly funded no, absolutely. So we're we're a small charity, um, not as small as we were uh, in those early early days. <laughs> but uh, um, our, our roof doesn't need quite so much as it did then. But it, we're a small charity, and we have no no funding, no government funding. So, you know, anything that um, anybody can do for us, um, you know, spread the word, support us. It really, really makes a difference. I can't say how much it makes a difference. We are focused on working with our lovely dogs to you know get these answers and to be honest with you our dogs the more you know our dogs are ready and willing so the more quickly we can we can we can get working and find out more that the, the more lives that will be saved thank you claire and i know what you mean about missing uh daisy every day you met molly my first mm. miniature bull terrier and the the loss and the pain of losing your best friend I know loads of people listening will know that pain and mm. it really can't truly be described, I don't think. No, and I mean you'll remember little Woody who oh, yeah. Woody Woodchips, who was not a not a not a medical detection dog. Um, but he had a um actually he had a parasite, interestingly, at um when he was with his breeder at four weeks old, he had a protozoan parasite that damaged um his um nervous system and um was 
had, was going to be put to sleep and um, I took him and, and uh, just couldn't quite do it nor could the vet because he got these very strong little eyes, beady eyes looking at us. So um, he was treated, they didn't know what it was at the time but um, he's treated antibiotics and then a few weeks later they realised what it was and managed to get rid of this this awful parasite and as you will remember he had to learn to walk in a very different way I taught him with a clicker yeah. um, I was told he'd only lived for a year um, he lived till 14 and a half and I loved every single moment with that dog I loved that he taught me so much he taught me don't worry too much about the future don't worry what you look like just live every moment because you're lucky to be here and I think that message is something that the dogs have got so right that's so interesting because it does segue into talking about your diabetes dogs but also to someone who I know you know as well who is Rupert Sheldrake Um, my first episode of a dog's life was actually with Rupert um, in his library and of course his work talks about the knowingness of dogs and dogs picking up on intention and acting on their own volition sometimes which Mm -hmm. is what we saw with for example I'd love quickly to talk about Maureen and Max could Mm -hmm. you do that there because in a way Max epitomized um, a lot of what Rupert talks about a dog's you know knowingness and picking up on disease and illness in in their close humans but acting on it Absolutely. So, I mean, that was an incredible story of a lovely, lovely lady who um, had a a, a type of cancer that's very difficult to diagnose on on a mammogram. And um, she'd been for her her standards for checkups. She was a lady who was of the age group that had checkups, but... um, uh, you know, had, had had been given the complete or you know healthy, no problems at all. Max was seeming to become increasingly anxious around Maureen, and she describes him looking up at her with big eyes, trying to, she felt, communicate something, but 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 not knowing what he wanted to say. And then one day she said, "I was." Um, he kept on just sort of nudging and nudging and, and 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 had his head on my breast and nudging and staring. And she said, "Suddenly, I just got the feeling that there was something wrong." Um, so she went for a third test, and was much more determined in saying, "You know, I really do believe that there's something very, very wrong here." And um, an, an advanced lobular cancer was was discovered. It saved Maureen's life without question. And this is exactly it. It's this, yes, the dogs have this ability. They have this incredible sense of smell. But it's the fact that they've lived with us humans for so long. They know us humans so well that they have an insight into us that sometimes we even don't have. And, you know, I do believe there's been much scientific discussion for many years about whether animals can show insight or, or whether they sort of simply live from second to second. You know, I think that uh, without question, they show insight. And like us, they, they, they do this from previous experiences, from things they've learned and their relationships with us. But with the assistance dog aspect of medical detection dogs, explain a bit more about the diabetic dogs and how they're really helping people live independent lives and also reduce pressure on the NHS. Well, as you say, we've got these dogs and they started with dogs that were warning people about uh, blood sugars and telling them whether they were too high or low and preventing individuals that had very, very um, aggressive and and, and, um, complex conditions um, from going into hospital in, in diabetic comas or having diabetic seizures, which are very, very damaging. 
So, so dogs are reliably, we've, we've published this in peer-reviewed journals, able to detect human blood sugar, and quite incredible, you know, these rapid drops that can occur in individuals, sometimes within 10 minutes, that mean that they're one minute, they're well, next minute, they, there's a true medical emergency. And since this time, we've discovered dogs can do many more. Uh, they can work as medical assistance dogs for many more conditions. There's a condition called POTS. It's a drop attack. Many young people have it. They suddenly go instantly unconscious. No warning whatsoever. They hit their heads on, on um, floors, on sinks. They have to go everywhere accompanied. They have to be in wheelchairs. I mean, it really is a very, very debilitating condition. Very little known about it. The dogs are able to give a warning three to five minutes beforehand. And this means that um, the individual can make themselves safe, sit down or lie down. They can't stop the attack. The attack still occurs, but they're safe. And therefore, they don't have to be accompanied everywhere or, 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 or um, be in, in a wheelchair. Gosh, it's amazing that the range that these dogs can work with. Now, I remember there was a groundbreaking uh, case study where uh, it was Coco, the chocolate Labrador, that was trained to alert to Addison's disease, which is a bit like diabetes, isn't it? Except instead of insulin, it's all about fluctuating cortisol levels. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're quite right. And how um, did Coco, um, coincidentally, if you like, prove that anecdote that dogs smell fear? Well, I mean, it's, it, this is the thing. I mean, cortisol is our sort of stress hormone. We need, we need a certain amount of it to keep us sort of you know, active and, 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 and concentrating. But of course, we all know once cortisol ever gets get too high, either over a prolonged period where they result in quite a lot of damage to the body or over the short period where we feel very panicky and stressed. Um, that, um, as you say, Addison's disease is an inability to keep the, the cortisol levels um, correct in the body. And Coco was clearly able from training him on breath samples to reliably uh, detect and uh, alert Karen to her low, her low um, points where she would have otherwise had an Addison's crisis, a life-threatening con condition. Because the, as you say, the application, once you understand a dog can detect uh, cortisol levels from your breath, you then realise that this old adage that dogs can detect stress is absolutely true. You know, that they can smell fear must be absolutely true and in fact we trained a dog um last year and i'm very very pleased to say that we we're able to for a gentleman who had very very complex condition um and um has a very regular dissoci dissociation due to a very very traumatic episode and he has about 60 seconds when his cortisol levels rise before he goes into a panic attack and dissociates and the dog is able to do this and we have footage of the dog waking the gentleman up during the night as he goes into a night terror um gently getting on the bed patting him waking him up and preventing this awful episode where sometimes he doesn't know who he is for 24 hours all to do with cortisol levels all to do with fear so i think there's a huge amount we're going to learn here you know for the future and understanding um the dog's ability to detect people whose perhaps behavior and, 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 and anxiety is, is 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 detrimental to them what happened with the malaria project so this was the, the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine in london um approached us we'd already worked on a couple of projects together very small projects and they were looking um with um a professor at Darwin university 
ways in which malaria could be better controlled. The thing about malaria that they discovered was that malaria is a parasite and when it gets into its host it changes the host and actually changes the host's odour slightly and the reason they knew this is because mosquitoes that haven't got malaria preferentially bite humans that have got it. So this is the way that the parasite very cleverly keeps the cycle going. So the mosquitoes are actually attracted to people with malaria and in the London school they discovered this was an odour change. So it made sense, okay, well if a mosquito recognises the change then surely a dog can. And we had socks that came from asymptomatic children in the gamba. So these aren't children that have got a temperature and are being suspected of carrying the parasite. These are children who are apparently well. They wore socks for 24 hours, little pop socks, and these socks were flown back into the UK and cut up and the dogs were trained. And again, with a relatively small um, number of training samples, the dogs were able to indicate with up to 80% reliability that these children, uh, which children were carrying the parasite and which weren't. And um, this um, is being looked at for a model that could um, improve the understanding of movement of malaria individuals with malaria across borders in Africa, because some countries have very well now controlled the malaria, and other countries still sadly have a lot, you know, a lot of people that are still affected by malaria. So border control, you would get you get offered treatment for your malaria, so you don't go back and spread it into a country that's becoming malaria-free. Talking about crossing borders and everything, because right now we're not allowed to do that because mm. of coronavirus. You've been approached, Claire, to train dogs to sniff out COVID-19. We have. Well, we know dogs can reliably detect bacteria. And in fact, we've been doing a study over the last couple of years with Imperial College, and we know they can detect respiratory bacteria. Um, we also, there's a study was done in the States a couple of years ago indicating that dogs could detect um, viruses in cattle. So there's good evidence that this could be, could be the case. And we believe that dogs could, very, uh, could help and assist in the fight against this terrible disease. Now, obviously, again, it would be, um, you know, there won't be hundreds of dogs, but these dogs could be used at very important points. For example, when we all come out, um, hopefully before too long, and we're allowed to go back to at least some sort of reasonable normality. <laughs> There may be flights coming in um, from other parts of the world where the virus is much, much more severe. And the option would be either to wait and test every single person, which would be very time consuming and would hold people up in the, in the um, airport or get a dog to sniff each person in turn and pull out which person needs to have the test. So this would really speed up and help to identify individuals who are coming back into the UK that may be going to re-infect um, areas of the population and cause these hot spots again that's the sort of model we're looking at currently i really believe dogs can do it without question but the moment we're looking at the safety we're looking at um ensuring that the samples can be um given for the dogs training in a very safe way so we're killing the virus beforehand so at the moment we're in the process of, of, of working out all the sort of um methodology before that but i really do believe that if we can get support for this then dogs could could also assist in this the fight against this terrible terrible disease and could it help again you know with the care workers on the front line absolutely i mean in any situation where you need that this is where the dog as a biosensor is fantastic any situation where you need rapid in non-invasive um indication of who's carrying the disease now this doesn't mean it's not followed up by a medical test what it means is you've got a 200 people you've got to decide very quickly in a few minutes 
which people have got the virus and which haven't, which people are going to get the test and which haven't. When any situation is like that, the dog can help. He can help say and, and do these things rapidly and reliably. Because at the moment, um, there, there is there's trouble, well, there's trouble, there's problems with developing a test that's going to be reliable enough. And of course, developing a serological test that will test people who have had the virus but have had no symptoms um, and working out whether they're immune or not. Absolutely. I mean, I think where the dogs will be key is spotting those people that are shedding the virus rapidly so people that definitely have got it but perhaps are showing no symptoms at all or not yet showing symptoms i think that's where they will have their power um because these are if, if you like the sort of super spreaders the people that don't feel unwell but go around and and, and, and infect a lot of people as, as they as they as they move so i think that's where the dogs are really going to help and they will help in enabling the testing to be um, done on the correct people so rather than sort of in the, those early days many many tests were wasted if that's not the right word but you know thousands of tests were negative um, and actually the dogs would be able to say okay this is the group you ought to be testing this is uh, these are the ones uh, these are the group that smell of the COVID-19. That's amazing I mean, how do you th how long do you think Claire it would take you to train the dogs to be reliable on this? Well, we've got a group of dogs ready and waiting. They were going to go on other studies, but of course, it's been a bit of a sort of um, a hold up with samples coming in from the other studies due to the lockdown. So we've got six dogs. They are brilliant little dogs. They are all ready and waiting to go. <laughs> and I think, you know, we could get them once the samples arrive on site, we could get these dogs trained and ready within six to eight weeks. Um, that's, you know, I mean, whenever you do any of this work you never know for sure the answers until you you know you, you try um it may be that this is there's um it, this is a very very difficult smell to train but when you bear in mind that we've recently trained dogs to detect parkinson's disease there's currently no diagnostic test at all for parkinson's disease people are um diagnosed because of the awful symptoms they develop later on in the disease process and this can then be um, followed up with a dat scan brain scan which shows the damage that cannot be diagnosed early now our dogs could smell parkinson's disease very very strong with uh, swabs, um, sweat swabs that come from individuals who were um, not yet on treatment. Now, this indicates that, you know, if, if they can smell a disease where there's currently no diagnostics, I really think there's a really good chance that they can smell COVID-19. It's a respiratory disease and people are going to be, you know, it's going to be coming out on people's breath. That's so extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I love it. And the Parkinson's particularly, that could so help people. A terrible disease. My dad was diagnosed with it two years ago, and um, you know the, the the difficulty is with it because not many people um, are diagnosed early. It's mm. Very little mm. investment into medications that will help early Parkinson's, because you know, sadly, pharmaceuticals you know they they, they want to invest in things where they're going to um, make money out of out of the drugs that they're going to supply, and, and, and if they haven't got anybody with early Parkinson's, it's, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense. I also believe that increasingly we're going to understand so much more about the microbiome. You know, those good bacteria that live in us. We've talked a lot about the bad ones, but the good bacteria that live in us that keep us healthy. I believe dogs will be able to indicate when people have an unhealthy um, microbiome. And in this way, they may be able to help us prevent diseases that may occur um, unless these, these microbiomes uh, are improved. For example, there is some evidence that um, Parkinson's disease may be um, 
more prevalent in individuals whose gut microbiome um, wasn't correct for, for many years of their life. So I think all these things are going to tie in with each other. And again, I think the dog holds the key to help. Oh, I just love that because, again, um, my mother suffered from dementia and dementia, similarly to Parkinson's, is linked to probiotics and to the yes. health of your gut because some people are saying that is now your second brain, exactly. your gut. So exactly. this could really help on, on for dementia as well. Exactly, exactly. I mean, say we, you know, say we had dogs that we were able to detect 20 or 30 years before that our microbiome, um, needed improving in order to help us protect us against some of these brain diseases. Um, I mean, they know, don't they, that these awful plaques that go up to the brain that, that, that can result in dementia, um, the bacteria help help reduce them, the, the, the movement of these. So, you know, this is there's so much here we've got to, we've got we, we can learn, and you know, it's this world voter, it's this world that's been largely ignored by us humans for many centuries, and yet our best friend's been sitting there saying, "Hey, come on, when are you going to ask me about this? Because I can tell you, it's going <laughs> to tell you a lot about your health." Oh, Claire, it's amazing. Look. Thank you for this chat. I, um, I really appreciate it. And um, gosh, you know, I think dogs maybe will be able to save us from ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I think we've only, we're only just scratching the surface. And I think everybody there at home, you know, um, look, at, look at your dog's nose twitching and just wonder what information he's picking up at this very moment. I think there's a lot they're going to tell us. Thank you, Claire. And hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you. That's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think of it? Yes, what Claire was saying about a dog's extraordinary sense of smell truly is mind-blowing. And I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows. And while you're there, go on, give us a five-star review. It really will help other dog lovers find us. And thank you to Mike Hansen, Sophie Bradley and Cookie for all of your help. And of course to you, Mr. Binks, for being, well, you know, just you. What's that? Oh yes, there'll be another episode of A Dog's Life coming up very soon. So why don't you subscribe now so you'll never miss another show. Bye for now.